This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 404, January the 30th, 1998. In this hour, Susan Burns, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rush Dooney, and I will continue our discussion of the implications of a strict view of creation, of taking Genesis chapters 1 through 11 literally. Now, one of the questions asked by Byron Snap is this. Uh, how have you handled the situation as it has arisen against your ministry? Well, <laughs> it has led to some conflict at times. I recall vividly this very superior, very able young man who claimed to be uh, a Bible-believing Christian, but his background was uh, totally in the sciences. And as a result, he wanted a very loose view of Genesis 1 following. And when I insisted uh, that any such reading was contrary to any sound hermeneutical principles, he became very angry, very irate, and, and lost his temper, really. It uh, ended our relationship. I tried in the process to be as kindly as possible, but uh, the sad fact is some people I have found are readier to fight for a loose view of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 than they are ready to fight against loose views about the nature of Christ about aspects of his life. They are so heavily saturated with the modern world and life view that any tampering with it is not permissible to them. The sad fact, too, is that within the church, hermeneutics, the study of interpretation and the premises of interpretation, is virtually gone. This means that uh, the Bible is there for you to interpret in terms of imported standards, in terms of literary genres, in terms of uh, a professor's particular hobby horse. Hermeneutics is not a part of uh, most ministers' education today. As a result, sound hermeneutical principles are generally lacking, and even in the circles where supposedly some kind of sound hermeneutics should prevail, it's pretty much lacking. How much was it stressed at Reformed Seminary, Susan? I did not take the hermeneutical courses uh, 
or a lot of those courses, they were forbidden to women yes. uh, at that time. After I left, they immediately started opening up more of the courses to women. My, my recollection of uh, Reform Seminary back in the days when I was there, which was the early 70s, was that it was strong, that it w had a stronger uh, position on creation and, uh, and on, the, on the literal interpretation of the scripture. However, most of the teachers I had, you and I have t discussed one professor who was there, whom we both know, but most of the teaching I had from scripture at that time was from Jack Scott and from um, a Morton Smith, who were solid yes. as they can be. So that was my experience uh, in those areas was really very limited. I came away from that school loving the Word of God, willing to fight for it, willing to die for it, and willing to stand on it. Unfortunately, that's not the case with many of the uh, students who, who have come out of the school since I was there. Mm -hmm. Well, the disappearance of hermeneutics in most schools has mm -hmm. been quite marked. With it has gone any appreciation of the fundamentals of interpretation. Mm -hmm. So people can in, import ideas from any other sphere and impose them on the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the result has become a kind of uh, field day for every fantastic uh, interpretation possible. Mm -hmm. Andrew is working on a series of uh, lectures now, and I'm not, I do so much, uh, we have so many uh, manuscripts coming at us that I can't keep it straight. I think this is the Chalcedon Lecture Series 1 um, yes. when he, where he will be discussing uh, principles of interpretation again and he's doing excellent work on that. It, it really, uh, they're a delight for me to transcribe and just really has some very sound principles, the historic principles, you know, yes. the, the principles that helped shape uh, the Reformed faith and that are taking the faith where I believe God wants it to go at this time. Yes, we're going to give a series of lectures, uh, Friday nights or Saturdays, a few hours, uh, on uh, the subject of the doctrine of Scripture. Mm -hmm. It will be myself, Andrew, Mark, and Brian Abshire. Mm -hmm. And we're looking forward to it, and we felt it was all important to begin with the doctrine of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Well. The problem as we face it today is that Protestantism is committing suicide because it has abandoned the fundamental premise of the Reformation, namely the Bible as God's authoritative word given so that he that runneth may read for every man. And as I indicated earlier, to depart from that is to depart from the heart of the Protestant faith. Now, justification by faith or God's sovereign grace in salvation is basic to the Reformation, of course. But we can find that it was taught uh, here and there throughout the history of the church. But this view of scripture that the Reformation, in particular, the Reformed uh, side, as expressed in the Westminster Standards set forth, was uh, paramount. When you read the Westminster Standards, the first chapter is on the Bible. Mm -hmm. 
It is foundational. So that uh, because it is foundational, therefore it follows that the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of atonement, all the other doctrines that follow have to be based on the first chapter, which is Scripture. It's inerrancy. It's authority. It's priority in the life of the believer in formulating his thinking and his action. Mm -hmm. Now, the surrender of that is uh, a disaster for uh, Christianity. One of the things that Andrew's pointed out in some of the lectures that I just mentioned was that, um, which is so obvious, is that we approach our interpretation of Scripture presuppositionally as well, so that uh, uh, so that we, um, uh, as as we interpret Scripture, we need to see if our, especially if our interpretation of Scripture deviates from that which we know is Orthodox Christianity, that it is um, um, based on our presuppositions and our, our presuppositions about who God is yes. and what He is, and that's so clear as we as we look at the evolution, at we look as we look at the evolution thing. This is the God of the evolution is not the God of Scripture. No. And if you want that God, then you're going to have to be involved in. Um, uh, you're going to have to live under his authority, and that's not a pleasant authority to live under, as our culture has as, as our culture has discovered. Well, Hegel began the recapture of Protestantism by paganism because he saw all of human history as the outworkings of Geist, of spirit, which we could say uh, of an evolutionary force, mm -hmm. uh, mindless but nonetheless working. And as a result, uh, by the mid-19th century, this type of uh, perspective had saturated the Western world. So overnight, people uh, turned from a belief in the literal historicity of Genesis 1 through 11 to a belief in Darwin. The change was mm -hmm. dramatic simply because the way had been prepared by Hegelian thinking. Hegelianism had a powerful influence in the United States. The New England uh, thinkers had all been captured by it so that Puritanism had given way to Unitarianism. The transcendentalists were Hegelian to the core mm -hmm. and the transcendentalists influenced American literature profoundly. Mm -hmm. It led to a totally different world in my view. And uh, the result was that uh, another religion had effectively taken place. I thought it was very, very interesting uh, when, uh, oh, about 25, 30 years ago, I learned that America's one of the most prominent conservatives who had been brought up a good old-fashioned Baptist in the South, was a Darwinist to the core of his being. Mm. And for him, Darwinism was uh, 
the logical conclusion to everything he'd ever learned. Mm. He had read heavily in all the older American writers, the New England writers, mm. who dominated the literary field. So that uh, Emerson in particular was almost an idol to him, and he could quote long passages out of Emerson. Well, it was uh, not even a step from Emerson to Darwin. It, it was just a slight uh, tilt of the head forward. And this saturated American culture. So we very quickly absorbed Darwinism. Mm -hmm. By 1900, in popular thinking, it was very prevalent. And by the mid-1920s, its capture of the mainline modernist, or rather Protestant churches, was complete. Since then, it has been a mopping up operation mm -hmm. on the part of this kind of thinking. The churches that rebelled against the modernism of uh, the latter half of the last century to the first half of this century have been progressively undermined by it because they have not looked to their hermeneutical principles nor seen the importance of the doctrine of creation. I know that one man told me, pastor of a large church uh, in the East, this was about 20, 23 years ago, that when the abortion issue came up, there were 75 uh, fundamentalist and uh, reformed churches in the area that were having regular meetings and when the issue was brought up, they refused to get into it. It was a social gospel. Mm -hmm. They had only one issue they would uh, make a stand on, John 3.16. But what is mm -hmm. John 3.16 in a Darwinian world? It becomes nonsense quickly. So we've had a very, very dramatic decline. The strong defense of creationism is in a variety of groups of a scientific character outside the church, like Henry Morris's uh, creation science group, and in the theological sphere by Chalcedon. Rush, you were talking about Hegel. Uh, I think we need to explore that just a little more because, as you pointed out, uh, his uh, philosophical evolutionary thinking had a great influence uh, in the United States and elsewhere. I'm doing some research right now on Marx for a lecture that I have to give, and of course his influence on Marx was, was uh, evident. Yes. Um, we were talking earlier in the break about what evolution means to ethics, and we really see that in Marx, of course, who held that that ethics uh, is economically, socially, and historically conditioned, so there are no absolute ethics. And yeah. we really see that that comes to the fore in a society influenced by evolution. Yes. Um, even things that the society ordinarily would look upon askance, uh, rape, 
and uh, murder and so forth. But of course, why should they be wrong if there's no if there are no absolutes, and if nature is to have its course? Uh, so there are definite ethical implications to this thing because the evolutionary philosophy leads to a particular ethics which undermines biblical ethics and erodes society altogether eventually. Mm -hmm. One of the ways I see it, and I, Rush and I had talked about this a few weeks ago, was um, I was just amazed um, before I came here. Uh, so many of my friends have children who are teenagers and all. Of course, the, the question of sexual activity comes up, and I know how my Christian friends respond. You know, you're going to maintain your purity, get married, and, and the biblical teaching. And I had so many, um, was, was aware of so many situations where the parents um, just accepted the fact that their children would have sexual impulses. Oh. They would even, they would want to teach their children safe sex. And safe sex meant that you taught them, you provided birth control for the girl, birth control pills or some type of birth control. These condoms. Christians? You no, these are non-Christians. Okay. Um, provide... Um, condoms for the children to use and even because their society is such a such a despicable place to be and there's so much crime you want them to have safe sex so you let them have it at home and I know of several situations where the little, the girlfriend or the boyfriend would move in into the parents home and live there and have sex there and that was just standard the parents were not appalled at this at all it was just a natural tendency and I be, as I began to look at that and think why you know my Christian friends would be screaming bloody murder at this, and rightly so. Um, the main concerns of the, of the non-Christians are that their children do not contract some sexual, some sexually transmitted disease. If they get pregnant, there's always abortion, and you know, so if the child, the real problem comes if the child becomes pregnant and wants to keep the child, and wants to give birth to the child and then raise it because it's, the responsibility is going to fall back on the parents. As, as I looked at that and saw that happening so many times, I kept thinking, why aren't they upset? And then I realized, of course, they were sexually promiscuous in their youth, but also it is just a natural urge. The sexual urge is just like hunger or needing to relieve yourself or being thirsty or being tired. It's a natural impulse that you just satisfy. And so they're not appalled when their children do this very natural thing. And that's just one of the real day-to-day um, -day implications that I have seen in the theory of evolution. Well, it goes more than that. If there's, if we're animals, then there is no such thing as morality. That's right. Mm -hmm. there, the, the, there is no right and wrong. That's right. Anything goes. And then right and wrong and morality are just things that have been used to control uh, human behavior. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what Marx said. It's, it's, it's the the bourgeois class's means of morality. He would he was would frequently use that term bourgeois morality. You know that as though there were no absolute morality. You know another point too. Uh, Rush, I was just thinking. You and I talked a couple of days ago about John Leo's column in the current issue. Yes. Uh, for those of you listening to the tapes, it would be um, one of the late issues in January of the U.S. News and World Report on um, this program, a new program on TV. I can't remember the name of it and wouldn't mention it anyway. Targeted especially to teens. That is uses such just promiscuous language, just filthy language on, on regular network TV, as though promiscuous sex was just very acceptable and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and normative in society. So yes. everywhere, you were talking, mm -hmm. Susan, uh, everywhere parents are conditioned to accept mm -hmm. this as normal. The abnormal has become normal in our society. Well, as Eugen Rosenstock-Husey wrote in his book, Out of Revolution, 
the key revolution in our era has been one that began early from supernatural man, Jesus Christ, to natural man, fallen Adam. And this is the revolution that is going on all around us today. The attempt to destroy supernatural man and to replace him with totally natural man, fallen man as normative. One question I'd like to ask is given that we agree that, that these are the this is just one of the implications of uh, the theory of evolution being embraced by our culture, what will happen to the church when it embraces it? Um, the elders who are standing up and, and saying, I'm a theistic evolutionist, or I, I want the long days, what is it going to mean to their grandchildren? Well, it means that the churches that embrace this faith start to disappear. And they're all fading. Their membership, in some instances, has fallen off a good third, even by their own statistics, and they are sloppy at keeping uh, records, and will continue to do so. When uh, Darwin was beginning his work at the same time, Matthew Arnold was seeing the end of Christianity and proposing uh, something that everyone could agree on to replace religion, namely morality. It did not occur to him that anyone could uh, question morality as well, but they very quickly did. <laughs> so that uh, today we have, uh, as a commonplace thing, both individuals and editorial writers declaring that it is ridiculous to criticize any man in politics for his sexual behavior because that's something purely personal, not of any concern in their public lives. So the uh, disappearance of morality as a criterion in the past decade has been dramatic. Rush, you pointed it out so well on that article you that memorial issue you did for the Notre Dame mm -hmm. uh, Law Review, I believe, on the difference between the, the public man and the private man, yes. and how it's a, just a very modern way of looking at things. Yes. You know, what somebody does in the privacy of their own home doesn't matter. The only thing is the public image, uh, which is a, a totally nonsensical bifurcation of man. It's really schizophrenic. Yes. It's prominent in our culture. But it is basic to our time. Yes. It is becoming increasingly vocal. And we see it again and again with <clears throat> leading persons in the news and the attitude is, well, it doesn't matter. As long as they can publicly perform well, it doesn't matter what they do privately. Not recognizing that what's done privately erodes what's done publicly. Yes. Well, there are other aspects to this question that we do need to consider. Uh. There's one that, I know the one that I have, this is a pet peeve of mine, and I'll, um, we've just done the issue of the Chalcedon Report on Feminism and, and shown just what a pernicious rot this is, uh, is on society. Uh, Betty Friedan, of course, and the other, um, many of the other feminists are just, they say they're evolutionists. Betty Friedan has said that she is, um, 
she sees the movement as the next step in the evolution of the race. Um, I don't know of too many people that would, well, back, going back again when I was at Reform Seminary, one of the big issues is we have to keep feminism out of the seminaries. Now the church is embracing it, the seminaries are embracing it. That's right. And um, it's really pretty much a sore topic, but if the implications of feminism in our culture have been so terrible, what will the, how will it be as the church continues to embrace it? What will happen to the church? Well, as we pointed out, it'll, it'll eviscerate the church. It'll, it'll, I mean, the church today is already feminized, and we've talked about this on well, I would say, occasions. I like the word demasculinized. Yeah, there you go. That, that's really what it is. Being yeah. feminine is not always a bad thing, and all of you men like the fact that your wives are feminine. The real yeah. crime and the real sin came in when men walked away from Calvinism. As, uh, the, that's you know, true. And but so that has led to, to a feminized church, and the church was not des designed to be feminized. Although certainly uh, it has a feminine element. I mean, there were women in the church, and that's the way that it should be. But um, as in the article that I wrote for the, uh, would have been the February yeah, the issue of the report, there. yeah, um, demonstrates that, um, I mean, the church is led into apostasy because she doesn't take a very strong, uh, gutsy stand for the truth. Notice I said she, the church, because she certainly <laughs> is, okay, the bride of Christ. But uh, nonetheless, the, 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 the masculine character uh, of the church has been undermined by this and basically evangelicalism is just what I call um, um, you know weenie religion I mean it's very mm -hmm. just soft um, soft religion so yeah it has serious implications it, it is changing by the way it's changing our language you've heard of feminist grammar before it's changing our language and I noted evangelicals are picking up on this um, We've talked about, you know, rather than uh, humankind, you know, rather mm -hmm. than mankind. And there are all sorts of, of, of issues relating to that. But it's, it's, um, it's what I call feminist grammar. But I, I like the point that you make about demasculinization because fundamentally that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's destructive of the, of, the, of the church and especially destructive of Calvinism. Because evangelicals can be feminists, but no true historic Calvinist can be a feminist. Mm -hmm. Because it's not a sentimental faith. One of the things that I've noted is um, in our Psalter reading over the past a couple of weeks, we did the last Psalter reading, and it said in Psalm 149, it was talking about uh, God's people um, having the sword in their hand and executing vengeance, vengeance yeah. and that it was an honor for all of the saints. That's right. And I thought, my goodness, most people today, especially men who are supposed to be doing that, and... Uh, taking a more active role in, in ministry that way, they're ashamed to and they apologize if they have to defend the honor of Christ. And that's one of the ways that I, that I see it. Um, yeah. Well, the whole idea... There again, demasculinization, because yeah. real men would do that. The whole idea is of, uh, the idea of chivalry and honor. Yes. Been lost. And justice. And justice. Rush, I think about you and the culture that you came out of, the, the Armenian culture... I think about you sometimes, you, you, you live in a different time where you've seen that that's almost lost and it's, it's, I can't imagine how sad it is to see those ideas of justice and honor largely lost. The world has changed very dramatically in my lifetime, both in terms of the really medieval 
culture that my father came out of back in the mountain country of Armenia and the horse and buggy days of California at that time a backward state. The change has been very, very dramatic. I'll go into that a little more, but at this time, please turn your tape over. You asked Andrew something about my family background. My father lived out in the country and on the mountain next to Ararat at Norkul, New Village, which was about 2,000 years old. They never bothered to change the name. My mother in the city, where her life was very close to that of urban life here in this country, except for the cultural differences, because it was uh, a different culture. In both areas, it was a very masculine culture. The man had to be prepared to defend his family because it was a world of uh, killing and massacres. So there were usually more than the immediate family in the household. Out in the country, the family could number under one roof a few hundred people. So there could be as many as uh, 50 and 70 and 80 fighting men under one roof. In town, when the man came home from work, when uh, he came through the door and shut it behind him, he would stand and survey the family, his children or grandchildren, his wife, any and all who were in the household, and uh, declare Dermanem, I am a lord. And he felt a pride, and they all hastened to take care of him, to bring his slippers, to bring him some surge, some of the thick Turkish coffee, and something to refresh him until it was time for dinner. This was even more pronounced where my father grew up, where there would be more than a couple of hundred, two, three hundred under one roof, and where at each age level you had designated duties. It did not lead to uh, a woman being uh, very inferior creatures. They were prime ministers to the king, their husband. Yes, that's right. They had a great deal of authority. Uh, interesting thing is that among the old country men or people, it was the men who were emotional. They would roar with laughter or cry over something freely. They would give vent to their emotions, whereas the uh, women were very controlled. Uh, you did not see emotional women. It was not their place. They could not do that. They could exercise a great deal of power within the family, uh, 
and did. They had a great deal of authority, and the more important their husband became within the clan, the more important they became. But to give free vein range to feelings, free vent, was the privilege of the man, and it had to be a responsible expression. He couldn't indulge in uh, tantrums. Well, this meant that at every level there was a high sense of responsibility. The child by five was working all summer long. In my father's village, he would take a half a dozen lambs and maybe a ewe or two up into the hills to graze. And by the end of summer, in fact, very early, he had a name for each of them, and they were like pets. They would come when he called them. He protected them against wild animals. And he lived all day alone like that till it was time to come in in the evening. So responsibility was basic. It meant that the idea of a woman was very, very different. She had to be highly responsible, and whereas the man could explode with anger over something serious or with tears, uh, she was always self-controlled. Uh, it uh, was a real cultural shock for me when I saw that in American culture, women uh, were the emotional ones, and men uh, were rather stoical. It seemed a warping. Uh, the man gave expression to his feelings, but he always knew he was responsible if he indulged in a silly uh, bit of self-expression, he suffered for it. He paid a price. Now, I cite this because one of the things that marks European civilization, Western European civilization, is that with the Enlightenment, the perspective was that men were the Men, people of reason and women were emotional. Well, this doesn't conform with a lot of uh, the realities of the medieval period, but it became the truism of the Enlightenment. Therefore, women properly uh, were restricted to church and children, and the Germans had an expression for that because uh, they were not capable of uh, rational thinking. And men were the rationalists. Well, that view warped men. It is interesting, it went hand in hand with a sudden prevalence of homosexuality. It was a false doctrine of men. With the romantic movement, there came in a sentimentalization of the doctrine of men and you have a lot of gushing and weeping and wailing on the part of the romantic 
poets and other figures of the Romantic movement. Correspondingly, at the time, you have a little more serious thinking being done by the women. So there was a change of roles. Consider Mary Shelley. It was she who wrote uh, a thoughtful book about what was happening, Frankenstein, which for many a scholar has become the epitome of the consequences of the new world that followed the French Revolution. Whereas Shelley and Byron and uh, the others were now full of emotional gush. The male and female roles became reversed, both artificial, uh, both really uh, peripheral to reality. Now, of course, we have uh, the further masculinization of women by the feminist movement, and you have the revolution and the rights of revolution being extended to children who now cannot be tampered with, lest it damage the psyche of the dear ones. So it is a very strange world to come into. The fact that even though I was schooled in American schools, I was growing up in an Armenian culture, that is, my father, pastor always of an Armenian congregation, so that uh, the language of worship and the language of everyday speech among the people we associated with was Armenian. And so many of the stories I grew up with were either totally Armenian or were uh, through an Armenian uh, uh, medium. I heard all the tales of Shakespeare uh, before I knew who Shakespeare was, so that when I was older I recognized them all, because among the grandmothers who used to tell us stories, uh, was one with a great deal of education who loved to tell us uh, the Shakespeare stories and even recite in Armenian some of the passages from Shakespeare. So I had quite a, an education in Armenian folk tales, Turkish folk tales, and Western literature. Well, with that came a belief in the Bible. It was the survivalist book. It was what had kept our people alive, generation after generation. It was a book in which God talked. So, as soon as I learned to read, I began to read the Bible from cover to cover, not understanding a lot of the words. I can remember in college this very uh, fine couple, good friends, and I'd spend a good deal of time at their home. They were both students, taking turns, one going to school one year, the other working to pay their way through, and uh, then the other going to school. Bert 
ease in the sciences. He became one of the co-inventors of naval radar, and Dorothy, an English major, uh, this was another Dorothy, Dorothy mm -hmm. Eves, and I would spend a great deal of time in their little apartment near the campus, would study there at times uh, with Dorothy, and one night, uh, spent the night there, at least one night, as we crammed for finals until about two or three in the morning. And uh, I remember Dorothy and I laughing uh, over the fact that we had both begun reading the Bible as soon as we could read, and uh, how we puzzled out the meaning of a great many of the words. Uh, and she said it was a shock the first time uh, she encountered the word horror in spoken English. It took her a, a second or two to figure out why that's the word I've been pronouncing from my Bible reading as war. <laughs> <laughs> we both laughed over that and other like uh, misunderstandings, and it tickled Bert no end. But uh, I really uh, was into my university work when I stopped doing my uh, a great deal of my thinking in Armenian and English became the language of my everyday thoughts even now occasionally I lapse in my thinking into an Armenian expression or two that I find colorful as I'm thinking uh, to fit a particular context. But uh, the world I lived in was uh, a world of a very alien culture. And it always gave me a remarkable perspective. I recognized very early as I came to uh, know the culture around me, how trivial the church had become. I remember going to one seminary that was supposed to be uh, more or less fundamentalistic to hear one of the prominent uh, pastors, one of the most prominent in that denomination, give a speech, a sermon in chapel, although I didn't regard it as a sermon. It was very entertaining. He was a master of homiletical uh, skills, but I was appalled at uh, what I felt was a trivializing of the faith. So by the time we walked out, the girl I went there with, a good Baptist, a good girl, in fact, we were very close for a while, and this was the beginning of our breakup, 
was utterly appalled at the rage I was in and how I expressed myself about that prominent pastor. She thought I had actually become demonic in my anger. But I demanded to know where was the content in all that he had said. And she refused to answer me. But the trivialization of the faith I found horrifying. I felt very, very much at odds uh, with everything in the church. It was a major problem for me, a major crisis. I knew I was foreign. I was grateful that I was foreign, but I did not know where I belonged in that picture. I could not see myself as getting ahead in any of the churches as I saw them. I've often remarked that the first church I held as an interim pastor when because of a problem the pastor was given a leave of a few months in Europe to vacation until everything settled down in that church. And uh, I was there because one of the key figures at the Presbytery headquarters at the time was a good friend of my father's and had a high regard for me, although he uh, disagreed with me and was tolerant of my opinions. It was a church of fair size with uh, gymnasium and all kinds of facilities. So as I've often said, I started at the top in the church and worked my way down, <laughs> less and less appreciated as time wore on. But I did realize I was out of place. People would come and get very enthusiastic about my preaching because I was a better preacher than almost anybody they'd heard. And in those days, I was a far better speaker than I am now. My content has improved, but uh, I'm not the powerful speaker I was in those days. I've aged, I've slowed down, and I'm calm and uh, deliberate in my speaking. But... Uh, I started at the top and have worked my way down. So now you can see how true that is by looking at the size of the congregation of a Sunday morning. Can I probe your mind a little more on your history, Rush? Yes. It's just thinking about the idea of family. It's interesting that conservatives these days will say, we need to defend the traditional family against the attacks of secular society. Of course, when they say traditional family, they mean the so-called nuclear family. Yes. That's not at all, of course, the family as you know it, where you yes. grew up. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, what family meant? Yes. Uh, 
it's not just that the family has become a nuclear family. It has become uh, peripheral. It is no longer the center of society and of civilization. The church has at times taken over from the family, but in the modern era, the state has taken over from church and family. It is the central institution. So the focus of life is now outside the faith and the family. The uh, father is no longer the high priest in the family. Everything in our society militates against his headship. And uh, the children will tend to regard the father as oppressive, no matter how mild and kindly and gentle he is. And the routine thing is to look to the mother as their protector against this ogre, the, the father. And that's a terrible deformation that our culture has brought about. The Enlightenment is in part responsible for it with their false exaltation of the man as the voice of reason, and they separated him from the family. They turned the family over to women. Now, in reformed circles, this was resisted to a degree, but at the same time, Enlightenment ideas infiltrated to a great extent. I know that there have been various groups, such as, uh, oh, the promise keepers, that have tried and are trying valiantly to revive the uh, male as head of the household. Now, I will grant you that uh, Promise Keepers has certain defects theologically, but I think it's wonderful that they are at least a step or half a step in the right direction right. towards the restoration of the proper authority to men in the family a godly, grace-filled authority. And this our society is lost. I'm grateful that I was a father before all this set in. I know how difficult it is for all parents today, fathers and mothers who are supportive of their fathers, of uh, uh, husbands. We live in a culture that uh, is anti-biblical. It's not only feminist, but it's beyond feminism now. It's child-centered. And more than child-centered, now it is going into pleasure-centered. The child has to be governed by the pleasure principle. Uh, the result is the uh, monstrous deformation of people all around us, even of young people, boys and girls within the church. Our culture is deforming them. This is why I feel so strongly about the homeschool and 
Christian school movement. I do feel the Christian school is very important because it enables children to come together to see each other in a Christian context and adult figures in a Christian context and to go home to parents who are supportive of that context. It is a major revolution in our culture. Therefore, it is all important. Well, our time is nearly over. Do you have a quick question or a comment that you'd like to make? All of this goes back, of course, to creationism because in creationism the pattern is set. Man is created by God in his image in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion. And that pattern has to be stressed in the church and in the family. But the church has tried to usurp the powers of the family, and the state has usurped the powers of the home and the church. We are in the greatest crisis in the entire history of the world. It is coming to a head. The breakdown ahead will not be merely economic. It will be cultural. The whole of this cultural uh, problem around us is in crisis and near collapse. Out of the ruins, we must rebuild a Christian civilization. It's going to be costly. Chalcedon is dedicated to that. Let me appeal to you to support us faithfully. We cannot afford to be just a holding action, continuing to do what we are doing. We need to expand our work, not to retreat nor even to maintain. There are so many areas where we want to expand our work. We must do it. There is a world out there at stake and a God, a, a Savior, a King who will judge us if we do not do our duty. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.